All righty. Tonight we're going to be in Revelation 17, and we're going to do verses 1 through 5. And the title of this message is The Harlot That Sits on Many Waters. Who sits on many waters? But before we get into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we simply ask tonight that you would indwell your word. Lord, that you would make it purposeful and holy unto you, Lord. That your word would go forth, Lord, and bless and indwell your saints. And that, Lord, we would leave here thoughtful and and contemplative about the things that you teach us. Jesus, we thank you for being the Word and for speaking to us so clearly. And so, Lord, we give this night to you, ask your blessings upon it, and may everything we say and do here Speak, simply be to bring glory and honor to your name and to your kingdom. And that, Lord, your purposes and your will would be accomplished. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. So Revelation 17, 1 through 5. These verses, I promise you that at the end... Of this, everything will be as clear as mud. Great. (laughs) But we're going to take a stab at it. And after I read these first five verses, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. God is not a God of confusion, but tonight... I think he's walking a fine line. So let's get into it. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, and again, this is John, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Hubba hubba. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So, no explanation needed here. Um, These verses are very plain to understand. And so we can just end now, and Donna will be very happy in children's ministry that she can go home early. So, wow. That's, that's a mouthful. But as I said, we are going to take a stab at it. 
Chapter 17 is the first judgment on Babylon. Really, there's two judgments on Babylon. Chapter 17 and chapter 18. Tonight, we're going to see chapter 17 is, is the spiritual judgment on Babylon. And then chapter 18 is going to be the uh, physical judgment. And it's going to be an economic judgment on Babylon. But tonight we're going to look at the spiritual judgment on Babylon. And, and you know, Babylon, as we all know, ancient city, that came out of the Tower of Babel. And you know what's really cool is when you go through the Bible, you can find so many words and sayings that we still use today. Like, what do we say when somebody's doesn't make sense? They're babbling. That comes from when God confounded the language. And we still use that today. Another one is the handwriting on the wall. Another one is the, the uh, father of music and musical instruments was Jubal. Thus, we have Jubilee. And so we have many words today that we that we can trace back to the Bible. Babel, one of them, the confounding of the language, it, it's it's interesting because the word actually means the gate of God. And and that's what they built it to be, to where they could get as high as they possibly could, study the stars, the planets, and and be close to God. It was, it was the, the gate of God. They were going to rise up and, and be equal with God. And so that was why God uh, had his judgment upon them. And it's also where they got the term Baal for the false god Baal. And so, you know, the spiritual judgment is really, as we're going to see, it's, it's the judgment on the one world religion that is going to come out of the Antichrist. And so when, when the verses say the harlot that sits on many waters, you can take many waters and, and, and really take that and mean worldwide. It's, it's a worldwide false religion that the Antichrist is, is, is going to initiate on the world. And, and remember, Satan is in control at this time. This, this is his world. And he's causing the world to worship the beast, which is essentially Satan. If we go backwards in Revelation, Revelation 13, verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain from the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13, verses 13 through 15, He, Satan, the Antichrist, possessed, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. 
so that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Gonna have to excuse some of my spelling here. Just a little side note. I had a really bad day yesterday. My computer crashed, the keyboard wouldn't work. I lost my message. I started to retype it on my surface. It was acting up, and so I ended up typing my message, believe it or not, on the on-screen keyboard today. Which is worse than this? It's actually this, click, 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 letter by letter. And I was pretty proud of myself getting through that. It was a real challenge. So let's look at the word harlot. We all know what harlot means. And if you remember in the Old Testament, God told the prophets to tell the nation of Israel who was worshiping idols that they were committing adultery. They were committing spiritual adultery on God. They were worshiping false idols and God literally called these false idols harlots. He called them whores. He called them prostitutes. God would say that my people are whoring after other gods. And so we know that God takes us pretty seriously. He takes the worship of false gods very seriously. Jeremiah chapter 5, five verse 7 says, How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and, and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. Meaning that the people came in droves to the places where the false gods were being worshipped. Many times it was on high hills. It surely wasn't in the temple where they were supposed to be worshipping, where they were supposed to be sacrificing. They would go into the temple, but as we know and as we read in the Old Testament, they were going through the motions. Oh, it's a Sabbath. Got to go to temple. Sound familiar for some people, you know, oh, it's Sunday. I used to be like that when, you know, when I was being raised as a Catholic. Oh, it's Sunday. I have to go to church. Well, it was the same thing. It, it was, it was um, something that they felt compelled to do. It was, uh, uh, as we say in the military, it was, it was just a block that they had to check off. Okay, I'm good. Went to the temple. I sacrificed the lamb, I sacrificed the goat. Sure, it had some blemishes on it. It was blind or crippled or, or deaf. You know, we all know that the sacrifices had to be without blemish. Imaging, symbolizing the future Messiah who would be killed and sacrificed and slain without blemish. And so even when they went into the temple... And even when they were going through the motions, they didn't want to take their, their best livestock. That was 
that was money that they were throwing down the drain. And, you know, oh, there's hundreds of people there today. God's not going to see one blind lamb or one crippled goat. And so we see that the nation of Israel, as you go through the Old Testament, became more and more and more and more apostate and farther and farther and farther away from God. Ezekiel 23:37 says, "For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands." And, and God explains what that means in the next verse. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. They were false gods, worshipped by the pagans in the land that Israel was dwelling, the ones that they were supposed to conquer and push out that they never did. And then they got wrapped up in their idol worship. They started intermarrying and started following their new pagan spouse in worshiping their gods. And part of that worship was to take your children or take your baby. And I believe it was the god Molech. They would, they would heat the statue's metal hands up to red hot and lay the baby in there. And that was how they sacrificed their babies sometimes to the false gods. And so that's what God means when he says, passing them through the fire to devour them. And so here, you know, God's not speaking of physical adultery. He's, again, speaking of spiritual adultery, which is worshiping false gods. The Bible says that God is a jealous God, and he will have no other gods before him. He will not accept idols. You know, we've we've all heard pastors and teachers talk about, you know, well, if you're really consumed with your cars, that's your idol. If you're really consumed with your stereo, that's your idol. You know, fill in the blanks. But, you know, it really, it, it, it goes deeper than that. It's It's a matter of time. If there is something in your life that consumes most of your time, Whatever it may be, uh, a job, you know, it, it, it comes down to time. Why does it come down to time? Because when we spend or when we are consumed with time on other things, we have no time for God. And so literally our time can become an idol. And in God's eyes... When we don't have time for him, it means we have another lover. We're committing spiritual adultery. And God is jealous of that. And husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, whatever the case may be, would 
your spouse being consumed with spending an inordinate amount of time with another person, especially if it's the same sex as your spouse, would that not bother you? Would you be suspicious? Would you be jealous? And, and that's, a, that's a pretty poor comparison, I, you know, I grant you, to the way God feels. But if you put yourself in that position, that's, that's a tough thing. Does he still love me? Does he love her? What is going on? And, 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 you know, really, for us, in ways, that can... Uh, you know, I've read articles on, on these things, and it's... It, they call it emotional adultery. And I don't know if I'll go that far, but it causes problems. It causes problems with our spouses, and it really causes problems with God. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. So he carried me away in the spirit. (laughs) I have really learned to dislike computers the last couple days. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a, uh, on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Again, we're talking about a religious system here that has captured the worship of those on the earth, meaning those who have taken the mark of the beast. Our verse says, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. This is that one world religion that that people are committing adultery with. It's, it's certainly not about Jesus Christ. It's certainly not about His salvation. And we've seen the color scarlet or, or the color red before. And again, going back, going backwards, put it in reverse, Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Revelation 13.1 Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. So notice this woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. It's the same beast 
that the harlot rides with seven heads and ten horns. That's not it's not a coincidence. Seven heads, ten horns, seven heads, ten horns, seven heads, ten horns. And so what does that mean, the seven heads and the ten horns? Well, those are representative or symbolic of the dictatorship of the Antichrist. This is, this is his kingdom. This is the division of his kingdom. And her position, riding the beast, indicates that on one hand, she's, she's supported by the, the, this one world religion. She's riding on it. She's, she's supported by it and by the political power of the beast. And then on the other hand, she's in a, in a, in a dominant role and she at least outwardly controls and directs the beast. When you're riding on an animal, it's supporting you and then you have, you know, whatever, reins or if, if, if you're riding bareback and, and really brave and everything, you just grab onto the mane and, and, and steer it that way. Um, I've never had the pleasure of doing that. <laughs> I don't know if I would want to. But the beast is, is her support, and she's directing the beast. And so her association with blasphemy and the dragon's beast, you know, they're, they're, they're clear, clearly seen from God's perspective what, what it is, the, the falseness of it, the adultery of it, the fornication of it. But to the people of the earth, how is that How's she going to look? How's that false religion going to look? It's going to look awesome. It's going to look religious. It's going to look like it has the faith that everybody wants. Oh, that's the faith that I want. Isn't it wonderful? It's so peaceful and everybody's getting along and the you know the bumper sticker coexists and and, and all of that that's going to be the faith that everybody wants i have a bumper sticker that's really cool over in my office and and it looks i'm afraid to put it on my car because i think people are going to glance at it and say oh it's one of those people or yeah yeah he's right in there with us and it looks just like the coexists bumper sticker but if you look at it closely it's got it's got christian symbols in it and it says one exists but it's just so close to looking like the other one that i'll just keep it in my drawer and pull it out and look at it every once in a while i'd hate for one of you guys to see me driving with that thing on and saying oh man pastor chuck's gone off the deep end but I find it interesting what, what we see and what we hear today in the world about us intolerant Christians. But these same kinds of people that are, that are focusing anger and, and hate and persecution upon us during this time of the Antichrist, 
they're going to rush to a false god and a false religious system that is all about murder, sin, anarchy, hate, and worldly pleasure. And that is going to be appealing, believe it or not. It is appealing today. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And, and, it, and it shouldn't surprise us, guys, because if you look around and you follow world events and, and you really watch what's going on, you can see that the world right now is ripe for the coming of the Antichrist. It is ripe, and it's never been more ripe, riper. <laughs> And so, you know, the world is being set up. And, and it's no wonder, because Satan is the god of this world, the Bible tells us. So let's just look at some of the things that I'm, that I'm talking about. And some of them are, you know, common sense, well-known. Christians are being imprisoned and slaughtered by the thousands. And what happens? The world yawns. It's just Christians. Christians in our military are being singled out as right-wing lunatics. That is actually written in a in a military manual. Not not lunatics, but but I think it says possible right-wing fanatics. And that's aimed specifically at Christians in our military. And they're labeled as potential terrorists. Churches are being singled out as places that teach hate and violence. And this is, guys, this is one that really confuses me. And I have a gay brother and sister, and to be honest with you, this confuses them too. This is not a general statement. It's not a, a, a general coverage of the homosexual population. But there are homosexuals that are marching in the streets carrying signs that read, Muslims and gays unite against the Christian haters. Now here's the confusing part. If you follow what ISIS does, in the Middle East, what they do when they even suspect, if somebody comes up and says, you know, Mohammed over there or, or whatever, whoever, he's a homosexual. That's all it takes for them to take that person to the top of the tallest building that they can find bind their hands and feet, and throw them off. That is what they do to home. That is what ISIS does to homosexuals. And so, why in the world would homosexuals march in the streets with signs saying that? Well, I can tell you why. Jesus told us. The prophecy that Jesus gave us is, is, is coming true right before his, our eyes. And that is that the world will hate him. They hated him first. 
And the world hates him now, and that hate grows ever stronger by the day, by the week, by the month. Christians cannot exercise their right to free speech without being labeled as, the magic word, haters. <laughs> I see that word way too often. And, and these are, this is some sad ones. The Holocaust has been removed from history books. Not everywhere, but in many places in public schools. And most kids have never heard of it, including college-age kids. There's a video done by Ray Comfort called 186. If you've never seen it, watch it. He asks college kids. Not only have they never heard of the Holocaust, they have never heard of Adolf Hitler. The name doesn't even ring a bell with them. And, and you know, the one thing that's always been attached to the Holocaust is we must never forget. We must never forget. Well, we've forgotten, not all of us, but generally many people have forgotten about the Holocaust, the horrors, everything that went along with that. Many people deny it ever happened. Oh, it was just fake. It was, it was all set up to bring sympathy to the Jews. But guys, we're living in a time of a new Holocaust. Abortion, ISIS, people being killed, not, not just Christians, not, not just babies, but people being slaughtered for no good reason around the world. Anti-Semitism, guys, is nearing right now worldwide. It is nearing World War II levels. And one of the hotbeds, if you don't follow current events too much, one of the hotbeds of anti-Semitism is on the college campuses of the United States of America. And guys, you know, if, if you oppose abortion, and if, if you oppose the dismemberment of babies, and here's that word again, we are deemed to be haters of women. Marriage is not sacred anymore. And so, you know, I could go on and on and on. And so we look around, we can see the world that we live in. The world has basically become desensitized to death and violence. And let me give you an example of that. You know, when I was like, I don't know, six years old, and shame on my dad for doing this. <laughs> he took me and my older brother. Fortunately, he didn't take my younger brother, who was, let's see, Andy would have been three or four. But he took me and my older brother, who was two years older than me, to see the original Godzilla. Godzilla. 
And that movie scared me to death. I still remember the end of that movie when Godzilla gets blown into pieces. And, you know, Godzilla, he could, he could, a new Godzilla could grow from a leg or, or an arm or, or something like that, a toe. If there's any piece of Godzilla left, he could grow another Godzilla. And so at the end, you think, yes, they've blown him completely to pieces. There's no way that, that anything is left of him. And then the very last scene in the movie was of one of his arms sinking down in the ocean. And I remember just cringing in fear, going, oh, no, Godzilla's coming back. And I was scared to death. That, that Godzilla was coming. And then later on in my life, and you know, we're talking about desensitization. Later on, I remember, you know, every Saturday afternoon when I was a kid, black and white TV, if you had TV, was Scary Movie Saturday or, or whatever they called it. And I'd, sometimes I'd plant myself in front of that TV, sometimes not. And there was a movie on, it was called The Tree Monster. And I thought, oh, so, you know, we're talking the 60s here. And it was in Africa. All those horror movies were in Africa. And The Tree Monster was this guy, literally, you could see his feet in walking around in this rubber tree. I mean, it's really obvious. And it scared me to death. I didn't sleep for weeks. I was afraid of the tree monster. And here's where the desensitization comes in, guys. If I, at that age, back in the 60s, would have seen the movies that kids watch today and how real they are, I would have died. I would have had a heart attack at six. I would have been, if not, I would have been so traumatized I'd still be in an institution from fear. But yet, kids today are so desensitized to violence and, and blood and gore and, and all of these things. It doesn't bother them. They can sit down and watch things that I would never have fathomed or even comprehended when I was a kid. And like, Oh, that's bedtime. And lay down and go to sleep. Doesn't bother him a bit. It's desensitization. And it's the same thing with children. We live in a world of throwaway children. And families have been desensitized. Well, if we can kill them, they must not be worth much. So throw them in a dumpster. You know, I just came out of work in three years with, with traumatized foster kids. And, and let me tell you, a lot of those kids are just throwaway kids. Mom and dad don't want them anymore. Mom and dad would rather do drugs than raise their kids. And I believe, I've never seen a scientific study, but I believe it's because of abortion. We have made kids worthless. So if it's okay to kill them, well, I'm not killing them. Just getting rid of them. They're going to go to a good family. They're going to go to a foster home. 
And don't get me wrong, I know some wonderful foster parents and have worked with them and, and, and wonderful. But it's not the same. It's not the same as home. I can, I can tell you almost 100% of the time, you can take a kid out of, out of their home where they have been abused, misused, beaten, molested, and put them in a wonderful, wonderful home. And they will want to go home, regardless of what the situation was. And so kids, you know, kids have just been come, become throwaway. But as we look at the world through our Bible glasses, through our, our eyes of, of eternity, through our eyes of prophecy, through our eyes of revelation, we can watch, sit back, and we can see the pieces being moved into place. We can see the stage being set for the arrival of the Antichrist. And you know, we're standing at the precipice, and it's coming. And Paul tells us about, about this desensitization, really. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. We live in a blinded world, guys. We live in a world of, especially in our country, and this is not meant to anybody, and I'm guilty of it myself. We live in a world of comfort zones. Don't show me something that's going to make me uncomfortable. Don't tell me something that's going to make me uncomfortable. I I have my bubble, and I don't want it popped, and I don't want to be pushed outside of it. I was speaking at a church one time. I think it was in Chicago when I was with Far Reaching Ministries. And sometimes, depending on the church and what they wanted, we would have some rather not really bad slides or pictures, but to give people just an inkling of an idea of the things that we saw there in Africa. Um, some of them were not bloody, but dead bodies and things like that. And, and I had a woman come up to me after speaking one day, and she said, why did you have to show us those things? Why didn't you just tell us about the love and, and the good things and all the people coming to Christ? And, and that's an example of the comfort zones that we, that we don't want to be knocked out of. And Paul tells us the world is blinded, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And this is this is to be expected. Second Peter chapter two verses one through three. Through three, Peter says and writes, but there were also false prophets among the people. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom 
the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. And again in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Sound familiar? Scoffers, making fun of. You know, I, I witnessed to quite a number of people over in the park when I'm there with my three-year-old granddaughter. And many people are receptive, and some aren't, and, and they scoff when you tell them about Jesus and the coming last days and, and, and things like that. And Peter says that these scoffers are walking according to their own lusts and saying, and this is a familiar one, you tell somebody, Jesus is coming soon, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, it's not true. They forgot about the flood. And Peter tells us this. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And so the world being blind, they know that God has judged the earth before. And I believe that instinctively God has put it in their hearts that he's going to judge the world again, the entire world. But it's just not going to be by a, by, by a flood, God promised. And so verse 4, as we continue... The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. We're told here that the woman is clothed clothed with emblems of luxury, purple, gold, precious stones, scarlet, yet she offers idolatry or abominations and impurity, the filthiness of her fornication in this sumptuous setting. Purple and scarlet were colors, as we know, of of splendor. They were colors of magnificence. They were symbolic. If, If you wore purple or scarlet, it symbolized that you were highly placed in the government, or even royalty. Remember when they mocked Jesus? What they put on him? A purple robe to mock him because he was said to be the king of the Jews. And so they put that purple robe on him, that scarlet robe, and they mocked him and beat him. And one of the reasons why purple was symbolic of those things was that the dye to make purple was extremely rare and extremely expensive. And so if you could afford purple, you could afford anything. And purple is my 
three-year-old granddaughter's favorite color. Except she calls it purple. Purple. And so in the course of church history, one of the deadliest marks of ecclesiastical or can't we all just get along corruption is the lust for earthly power and so that is what the the purple symbolized that you had earthly power and people lusted after that And our verse says that on her forehead a name was written. The name on her forehead identifies her in more ways than one. One thing to notice is that Roman prostitutes frequently wore a headband with their name engraved on it. And it was very glamorous and shiny and and beautiful and all of those things. But it still said, hey, I'm a prostitute. No matter how good that name, that headband, whatever it is, that tiara, no matter how beautiful it was, all it was doing was hiding the filthiness, hiding the prostitution. So what was that name? On her forehead was written, Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so to to make that clear as mud and to solve that mystery, we need to look at, at, at a little bit of the history of Babylon. Babylon's mentioned 287 times in, in the Scriptures. And the only other city that's mentioned more, is Jerusalem. Babylon was a literal city. It was on the Euphrates River. And Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, shows that right after the flood, Babylon was the seat of civilization. And, and you know the, whatever you call them, the archaeologists and, and all those smart guys, most of them agree that that is the seat of civilization, that area. And that seat of civilization, as we know from the Tower of Babel, expressed an organized hostility to God. And again, the Tower of Babel. And we all know that Babylon holds a very, very, very special place in the heart of the Jewish people. That's a joke. You can laugh. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar was the empire that cruelly conquered Judah and and took the majority of the um, princes, some of the prophets, the higher-ranking government officials, 
And many of the, the people took them into captivity where they lived for 70 years. And so to the Jews here, when, when, when John is writing about Babylon, to, to them, to John, to the churches that he was, he was writing to, the Jewish uh, people in those, in those churches, Babylon was the essence of evil. And it was, it was the embodiment of cruelty. And it was the enemy of God's people, the Jews. And it was a symbol of lasting sin, carnality, lust, and greed. And we can see in the Old Testament that Babylon is clearly associated with organized idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. And so in John's day, Rome epitomized all the antagonism and opposition to the, to the Christian faith. Babylon was not a good word. It was probably not spoken often. And so if we had to pick a city today that we would call Babylon, there's just way too many choices. I think probably right at the top of the list would be L.A., Las Vegas, of course. They don't call it Sin City for nothing. Um, Chicago, that's another one. The strictest gun laws in the United States. But ranks right up there at number one with gun violence. Amazing. And so any take your pick. You could say those are the Babylons of today. And so the concept of Babylon is really it's greater than, than what we see here and what we're going to see in, in, in chapter 18. The concept is greater than these two chapters. And it's greater than the Antichrist reign. In, in John's day, Babylon, typified by Rome, and in our day, and also throughout history, it's typified by the world system. But under the Antichrist, Babylon, in its religious and economical aspects, are going to hold sway over the earth as never before. Matter of fact... It, will control the earth. And guys, I just want to close with this. We talk about the one world religion. We talk about how that's going to pan out, how that's going to work. There's too many, you know, Christianity is too exclusive. Islam is too exclusive. Um, the Eastern religions are, you know, whatever. Everybody goes to heaven kind of thing or comes back as a cricket. Um, but how is that, how's that going to come to be? How's that going to look? Well, for those of you that are old, as old as, as me and you can remember this saying, set your way back machines for June 29th. 
2014. Everybody get that? Way back machines? No? Set your way back machines? Christopher gets it. That was a cartoon. What cartoon was that, Christopher? Yeah, Rocky and Bullwinkle, one of those, part of, part of that. Kid traveled in time. So set your way back machine for June 29, 2014. And I'm, I'm quoting here. In his ongoing effort to unify the denominations of the Christian faith, as well as other religions, Pope Francis hosted a series of interfaith gatherings at the Vatican that saw Muslim prayers given from the pulpit in the Vatican for the first time in its history. The Pope's efforts, while seemingly noble, and this, and this is from a, a Christian article, the Pope's efforts, while seemingly noble, are in complete contradiction to biblical scripture. But as biblical Christianity is being abandoned in the contemporary church, public displays of spiritual unity will become more common. It is all prophesied in Scripture as the world moves closer to the coming one-world religion of the Antichrist. Unity will become more common. It is all prophesied in Scripture as the world moves closer to the coming one-world religion of the Antichrist. And so, guys, it's, it, 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 it is coming. I remember when that happened. And... I remember being appalled having come out of the Catholic faith and believing that the Pope was, you know, God on earth. Of course, I didn't believe it still then, but, but I was appalled that the Pope would give up his pulpit for Muslim prayers. Could you imagine... I don't know. We'll pick on Peter because he was so knuckleheaded. Could you imagine Peter saying, Hey, Romans, come on, let's all get together. We can, we can pray to the true and living God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we can pray to Venus and, and come on in, Greeks. We can we can pray to Hermes and 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 Apollo and and we're all just going to get along. That sounds pretty absurd. But that's what is going on here. That's what happened June 29, 2014, and there are many movements still to unite all of the religions on the earth, make them all-inclusive, like a Mexican resort. You know, everything's inclusive. All the meals, everything, everybody gets along. And make all the religions inclusive. And one day it will happen, and one day... Many will be deceived to perdition, to an eternity in hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we seek your face, Lord. We thank you that, that God, our eyes have been opened 
And we thank you that our ears have been opened to the truth of what is going on in this world today. Lord, we thank you that by knowing your word, Lord, by studying your prophecies, that, Lord, we can watch as all of these things are coming to fruition right before our eyes, Lord. But, Lord, we know that some of those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled, Lord. The complete destruction of Damascus. The complete destruction of, of Babylon. Lord, which was being rebuilt and is still there. But, Lord, your word says that those two cities will have to be destroyed, utterly destroyed. And so, Lord, we await you. We wait on you. And, may, and Lord, may we, as your word says, Lord, may we pray and hasten your coming. What a wonderful thought, Lord, that through prayer we can hasten your return. And Lord, we thank you for that gift of prayer. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.